This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Happy New Year and welcome back for a new season of The Candid Frame. We are both excited and honored to bring you more great conversations in our 16th year of production. And we begin 2022 with a wonderful conversation with fine art photographer Sig Harvey. She provides some wonderful insight into what it means not only to be creative, but to live life creatively. She has published several amazing photography books, and her latest is titled Blue Violet. This conversation with Sig is, I think, a great way to start a new year. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, I've you know, been a great fan of your work for a long time, and I'm, I'm really pleased to finally have a chance to sit and talk with you. And going over your work, you know, there were so many things that I was really fascinated by. But one of the, the things I wanted to touch on, um, you know, you talk about early in your in your career about making the switch from taking pictures of something and then transitioning to, some, to making pictures about something. And I always have loved that 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 statement. But I think one of the things to be able to begin to do that and do that effectively is to understand the language of photography. And by that, I don't mean just the, the mechanics of making the picture. But just like if you're a writer, you have to understand the English language if you're writing in English. When you're using photography, you have to understand the language of, of photography. And I'd, I'd love for you to sort of talk to us in terms of making that tr- transition of making pictures of things and about things. But at the same time, coming to understand the language of photography and what what tools you needed to sort of master in that respect to be effectively to be effectively able to express yourself in that way in images. Yeah, I mean, this is something I think about a lot. I mean, you know, I had worked in a dark room as a teenager. I, you know, was in a ran a studio for uh, Mark Emerson when I was my very early 20s. I mean, I just knew that this was my medium, but it wasn't until probably my late 20s that I really sort of fully understood what you're saying. You know, I think it it was a medium that I I knew I loved and I loved being out with my camera and being a witness to the world, but it wasn't until I realized that I could truly tell stories about something and then how was I going to do that, right? The language of photography. So, you know, the form, I think you're talking about the formal concerns of light, of depth of field, of color, of palette, of um, of vantage point, all of these things, which camera you use, you know, all of these things. It's 
the difference between English and German or, you know, it's, it's a language, right? And what we, we want to use the, the, the language as most appropriate for the story we're trying to tell. So I think before, and I've never really exactly thought of it this way, but I think before I sort of fully grasped all of that and this idea of storytelling, um, I used, I sort of used to go out with my camera and sort of walk around and wait for something to strike me. Whereas once I moved to Maine and um, really sort of came at it from a different way where I sat in an empty room and said, well, what do I want to talk about? A camera is just an expensive pencil. Let me start there rather than going out in the world, trying to sort of target practice, trying to find things. So that was the switch for me where I really thought about, well, what do I want to say? And then how am I going to say it? So content and then form, right? The formal concepts, how is it best to tell this story? Like one of the things that I observe one of the when I do my 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 workshops, yeah. one of the assignments I have my students do is I purposely have them make photographs that are not in focus. They either can be just out yeah. of focus or they can be blurred. And it's really interesting how much more emotionally evocative an image becomes when it's sort of nebulous in that way, rather than being absolutely mm-hmm. sharp and, and and rigidly defined. And that's one of the things in terms of photograph as a language that I've always fascinated me, that the less distinct it is, that somehow it becomes more emotionally evocative. I, mean, I know that you've used that sort of technique in your images. So I'm, I would love for you to sort of explore that with me in terms of why do you think that is or or how have you found that effective in your work? I don't do exactly that same assignment, although I love it and we'll try it, you know, quoting you, obviously. Um, but this idea of, you know, when I think what you're suggesting is when you take away focus, you're taking away the subject matter. And so it becomes less a picture of a tree, a flower, a person, and it becomes more the idea of something right so then we're left with this sort of this not the exact representation that is clear and and we think we understand it immediately and then we move on we're left sort of grappling well is this a metaphor is this a symbol the viewer is working harder so i think it really comes down to um that exactly that idea of of you know photography is one of the few art forms that is really so tightly tied to its subject matter um, and its veracity around the subject matter. And I think there's a certain freedom that when you let go of focus, then you're sort of, you're, you're taking ownership of what you're trying to photo- photograph and also suggesting that it could be about that, but it's not of the subject matter. You know, I think we get at things in, in very much the same way there. You could either do it through focus or you could do it through, okay, let's, let's, let's go out and find metaphors for what we're trying to say. And whether that's lack of focus or whether that's, you know, using this, the symbolism, the language of art, um, you know, what does a cardinal mean in the history of art? Or what does it mean, you know, sort of looking at how um, we can use other ways to tell our stories. It's interesting to see when, when I look at the breadth of your work, there are some images that seem very intentional, especially when it came to the, the self-portraits. Yeah. Right. You had a concept, you had an idea, and you sort of formulated them. And there are others that are sort of just, they seem absolutely spontaneous, and they are spontaneous. And then you also have the sort of the free writing that you 
that you frequently do yeah. in terms of being able to draw an idea. And it really fascinates me the variety of approaches that you take to tap into that part of you from which all this creativity stems from. I, I think it's it's exactly all of that where, you know, I am trying to just make as many pictures as possible. You know, sometimes people, and I talk with their students about this all the time, sometimes our work is, you know, if we make the project so impossible to get to every day, then we don't get there. And then it becomes this another thing that you haven't done yet today or another thing you haven't done yet this month, even though it means so much to our lives to have these creative projects. So I say, you know, let's make it easier on ourselves. Let's make work, you know, subject matter that we can have we can have access to every day and let's try different approaches let's try um just being out with our cameras and responding to the world and see what happens you know using our cameras almost as a form of note taking you know they will they'll tell us where we're supposed to go but then also let's put the conscious mind to that and brainstorm around why am i drawn to that person why do i keep going back to this river why do, why are my pictures always out of focus or blurry uh, completely intentionally what am i trying to say with that so it's then you know spending time with the pictures that you make and then helping learning from them and then letting them lead us to the next pictures we make so i make work very much in a conscious way where I've brainstormed and mind map and I know I need this type of landscape with this type of uh, person in it and that I want the light to be at the half light or at dusk. Um, so, you know, I'm setting myself up for a, an image. I still expect there to be something that happens that I could never have imagined when I'm there shooting. Um, but this idea of some pre-planning going in, thinking about, you know, the language, thinking about the formal concerns of what would be best to describe this scene. But then, so working in this way, but then and bringing that back to the studio, putting it up on the wall, but also same day going out with my camera and something stops me in my tracks when I'm driving to pick up my daughter from school, make that picture and see what it looks like next to the one that's more constructive. And um, so I've always worked in this way because I feel like if I only work in a constructed way, as in like planning these shoots and, you know, sort of knowing the metaphors and symbols I'm trying to work with, my world gets smaller and the pictures get more restricted. Whereas if I only work in the I'm responding to the world kind of way, then the work feels less, not necessarily intentional, but um, it, it sort of has a place that feels like I don't quite understand it. So the two ways of working to me a means I work more, which is, you know, a great thing. I'm making more pictures, which is a great thing. Um, but it also gives me sort of access into parts that I didn't know before, you know. So working the, the two together for me is the sweet spot. And I always try and encourage, you know, people, my students to work that way too, because who knows what you, you only know what you know. So why not try working in a few different ways to see what sits right? Some people hate, absolutely hate the pre-planning. It doesn't work for them. And that's great. You know, one size doesn't fit all. But all I'm trying to do is just find a way to make more images. I do lots of yoga only as a way to clear out my head so I can make more images. That's how I, you know, each day I think about, well, how can I make something today? How can I start off the day with some ideas and then end up somehow with a photograph or a piece of writing that touches on something I didn't understand today or something that I want to appreciate or something that, I want to share with my community, my friends. Um, so it's a way of just making more 
rather than making less. If you only make work when you go on holiday, then you're not going to be making enough work, you know. So, and I'm really interested in this idea of the everyday and making a life through pictures. So those are the things that interest me. It's It sounds to me that you are completely trustful of your process and that you're not as preoccupied with the outcome, which I think provides pe- you a lot of freedom <laughs> because not everything you create is going to be successful. But if you trust the process, you know that in the end it will sort of work out. How? Tell me about your journey to get to the to that point where you trust the process and are not so bogged down by the outcome. I mean, I love that. I've never thought of it quite so clearly, but I do. I 100% trust the process. And it has come out of living it. You know, I, it's come out of years, of 30 years of making and seeing that, you know, it's not seeing that this process works and this process is truthful, like that, that, that what gets reflected in your pictures is always somehow a reflection of, you know, what you, the, the things that you're concerned with in the world. And that's concerned like tears or it's concerned with joy. It's like things that you care about. It comes out in the photographs. Um, I really do. And then that's why, you know, and I also, you know, when I teach this way, I am not trained as a psychiatrist or I have no idea, you know, what's going on in people's lives. That's not my process. Um, but I do trust that the camera always shines a light on someone's interiority. And I love that, right? Yeah. Because I, I think that if you can buy into the fact that, first off, if you can find a process that works for you, not that yeah. people have to shoot like Sig or like Ivarian X or anybody yeah. else, but if they can find that process yeah. that works for them, I think it allows you to sort of get out of your own way, especially if you are have some degree of insecurity, not just with the respect of whether you wield a camera well, but whether or not you have anything to say. And I think that that's where a lot of people get stuck is that, well, I don't know if I have anything interesting to say. And if you are obsessing on that, that sort of stagnates your ability to make the pictures in the first place because you're constantly second guessing yourself and you sort of fall back on a lot of bad habits in terms of picture making. Like when we started with where you're just taking pictures of things. But that, you know, you teach a lot. So you probably see that in a lot of students, especially people who are, you know, younger in terms of feeling, well, what, 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 I haven't led an interesting life or my life is kind of boring. What could I possibly create that would have any resemblance of significance? So how do you, uh, what's what's your response to, to that? I think that everyone has something to say. I know everyone has something to say. I've worked with hundreds of people over the years. And I don't know anyone who, I've never met a student that didn't have anything to say, that that something didn't come out in the course of the week or the day or the month or the year, four year, um, that their central themes didn't reveal itself through the photography, if you work hard enough. I mean, the things you're talking about here is also, you know, like insecurity, like, oh, I don't have anything to say. And you know, it, you just have to trust the process and you have to get out with your camera to make something. I once had a student who was so blocked because she had spent her entire life giving to other people, giving to her children, giving to her husband, giving to her community, that she felt like she had nothing to say. And so she had a hard time writing, very blocked, couldn't, you know, 
it was very hard to release. And so she ended up making this um, incredible. And, and so, the, but that was ended up being the subject matter of what she had to say of like claiming back time for herself and, and frustration. And it was, and it was an extraordinary project because she ended up making these still lives where she threw like rotten, rotten fruit at the wall. And they were just these most beautiful um, still lives of these stains on the wall. And it was about this life. And there is, you know, and I think it comes back to this idea that we think that, you know, or there's this sort of general notion that maybe art is something that's over there. You know, I mean, I think of art as just, it's the business of being human, the difficult business of being human with all our insecurities and failures and loves and hopes. And, you know, everyone goes through that in life. There's not, I'd show me a single person that, hasn't dealt with all of what it is, the human condition of what it is, you know, and uh, to be a human and to deal with emotions, to have feelings and all that comes with it, you know, and that is the very dish definition and ingredients of art. I think there's just a thing in the culture where that it feels like art's over there. What's it about? We don't understand it, you know, where, you know, I think this sort of methodology of writing and looking at metaphors and symbols that's just a way that's the bridge to get there right and unfortunately it's not taught that much in schools or so it seems like oh I don't understand it I could do that when you walk into a museum of modern art well of course you can do that you're human too right and and it's it's about realizing that all art is really it's not that complicated it's just it's as complicated as what it is to be human, which is therefore also very complicated. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. There's a sort of a demarcation of your work. When you were doing the, largely the self-portraits, it was more an exploration of your past, things that happened in your yeah. past, and you sort of re-examining them. And then later on, when you moved into Maine and you moved into the house, it was more about your present at the particular time. The things yeah. as they were playing out. And there there are different ways of looking at time and your life and your experiences but how did that result that shift in perspective start changing or influencing how you made photographs or or probably more accurately how you saw your photographs yeah so when I made those self-portraits that you're referring to, I mean, it was a period of about five years in the early noughts. So 2001, 2000, so 20, you know, almost 20 years ago to 2004. And I really haven't made many self-portraits since then. Uh, but it was a time period where I really sort of took on that idea of the constructed photograph. And, and I felt like I had to do it that way because I was making work about a very specific, about very specific past events. And so I would think about, well, what's the best light to use that? What would be the best shutter speed? What, what is the, um, is this story, should it be told in the shadows or should it be told at noon? You know, thinking about all these different ways that we can, we can tell stories. And then, you know, my central themes that I've learned and I've learned through sort of just watching my work evolve um, over a number of years are, you know, it's about feelings. They're about the senses, how it is to feel. And I'm really interested in photographing and writing about the times where we feel our most fragile, I think. That's one thing I've learned. You know, often, you know, I think as artists, we're the last to see what's happening in our own work. And I think that's true even of me, even though I love doing this exact thing, I'm still sort of flummoxed and dumbfounded by some, you know, some of the work that comes or the ideas behind the work that comes out of me. You know, I think I've always been interested in that time of fragility or where we as humans feel vulnerable. And so 
my work was often about relationships in my late 20s, early 30s, um, and it's still about relationships. Uh, at the time, then, it was about more of a romantic relationships, who I was seeing. And then I met my husband, and I wanted to stop, or then to be husband, and I wanted to stop making work about the past and concentrate on this beautiful present, where I also felt fragile and vulnerable in a wonderful way. And then I went on when we had moved to... Um, moved to Maine and bought our house and we had our daughter um you know I was wanted to make work about what it was to be a mother and how terrifying but also extraordinary that felt again vulnerability right so and if you look through all of yeah the trajectory of my work you know I think of emergency was about that sort of this idea of relationships gardening at night became about buying a home putting down roots having a child orchestra bomb my third book was about or grew out of being in a car accident where suddenly it felt the everyday was so precious and how life can change in an instant. Um, so it felt really powerful to make work about the immediate. Um, and then Blue Violet, which uh, my latest book, you know, grew out of, you know, my best friend dying. These ideas of just the, you know, just life and death and living and what it is to record a life through photography. You know, you mentioned your your daughter, and yeah. I think that one of the things that can can happen when you have a child. And unfortunately, I, I never had children, but I've I've observed you know my friends who have kids, and I've been thinking about my own childhood and the way that I remember certain things. And I have no doubt that my experience and my memories are very different from my brothers, who you know I grew up in the same household with. And there are certain things that are prominent in my head with respect to things that I remember of my, about my upbringing. And, yeah. uh, and so much about your, your work is about memory or, or about creating memories in, in the moment. But when you observe your daughter and you basically yeah. see her creating her own memories, her own experiences, when you observe her, has that given you any thought into how you remember things or how you interpret those moments as you sort of observe what's happening with your daughter? First of all, I think all of photography really is about memory. I mean, I, I this is a sweeping generalization here, but I, I kind of think it's true that, that the act of making a photograph is an inherently a romantic notion. Now, I don't mean hallmark romantic, but this idea of, of trying to preserve time of trying to hold on to time in some way. Uh, photography is so tied to time. Like literally these tiny increments of shutter speeds, 100, you know, 125th of a second, 250th, 500, tiny elements, increments of time to somehow shine a light on this idea of big time, of time, existential time. So, you know, I think that photography is, is so wrapped up in this idea of memory. Um, and with my daughter, uh, you know, I think it's, I actually think it's less me trying to sort of capture memories for her. I think it's much more about, you know, me. Um, I know one thing that she does for me, I mean, amongst the many, um, is that I think what children do in general is that they, they, they remind us about how it is to feel. Right, they feel it all—the the joy and the sadness and the immediate—and and I think for me that that's sort of an extraordinary way to sort of live is to go about you know feeling more. I truly believe that art can 
foster conversation can unite us, that if you can make people feel through your images or through your any type of artwork, through your novel, through your food, if you make people feel more, they'll be more empathetic. You know, I truly believe that. And so um, I think for me, what's having Scout and, and sort of watching her move through the world it, it's a it's a call to live. It's a call to roar with laughter, or it's a call to be sad when you're sad. It's a you know to to go out there. We just had our first snow recently. To like go out there and run in the snow. I mean, why not? You know, it's the sort of these free you know as in non monetary experiences of like living and 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 sort of seizing the day for, for me. Um, and so while, yes, those might be sort of future memories, um, I also think it's very much about the now and how we want to live in this one short precious life, you know. Books have always provided a wonderful oasis during difficult and hard times. Despite the many challenges we're all facing today, there is a joy to be had when you open a new book and discover something that inspires and brings happiness with each turn of the page. The books from the Charcoal Book Club are that for me, and I know it will also be for you because each carefully curated book that arrives on your doorstep each month is from a photographer who shares our love for photography. Their passion, their dedication, and their artistry are evident on every page, and they provide a wonderful break from all that negative noise that's out there. The Charcoal Book Club publishes and distributes quality photo books at an affordable price. And as you build your collection of fine photography books, you can also support photographers who are deserving of your interest and your support. Become a Charcoal Book Club member today and enjoy a great new title each month. It's also a flexible service, so if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbuckclub.com today, and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And if you believe in the work that we've done here for the past 16 seasons and you've never supported the show financially, today is a great time to change that. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you can make a big difference. Thank you for your kindness and your support. Tell me about your writing, because your books, especially the, the the latest one, Blue Violet, uses text as much as it does photographs, and there's a there's a wonderful yeah. synchronicity that that happens. I know that sometimes the text and the pictures have a, are separated by can sometimes be separated separated by significant periods of time. So it's like you're yeah. you're it's like pairing images, except you're pairing thoughts and ideas that you've put into words. Tell me about sort of developing that aspect of your creativity and merging it with what you're doing with the camera. So I never set out with the idea that I would make books that would have text and image um, and of equal weight, right? I mean, I'm sort of known for being more of a photographer, but, you know, I do consider myself a writer and that is a, 
enormous part of my practice, you know, just as much as taking pictures. I try and write every day. But what happened was when I was putting together and it came out of my teaching and my practice of just, okay, let's, let's, let's write, let's get out what we're feeling inside right now. Let's spend 20 minutes timed right where we just get out what we're feeling and then we'll just be free to move about the world, go make pictures, go and interact with, you know, the world around us. And then it felt like, you know, occasionally when I was doing these 20 minute free writes, half an hour free writes, that I would really tap into something that felt important. So I would later come back a week later, a month later, the next day, depends, no time limit, and just take out that moment of, for example, when I saw the light shining on the mountain and I would take out whatever it was, you know, or, or my daughter saying this one thing or something I'd overheard on the train. And I would come back to that one thing and it felt like I had more to say around it. So then I would sort of do these extended writing periods of where I would just write about that moment and dig in deep, write to sort of see what's behind that, you know, what's, why am I interested in this? And then that would become a sort of vignette and then I would rewrite it and rewrite it and it would become something that would end up in a book. Um, and so often I think this idea that the the written work it has this sort of journalist feel, but I want to sort of just note that it definitely is, is more labored than that, you know, that it, it came out of an observation and then was sort of worked into a, a, you know, a piece of writing. And initially when I put together my first book, You Look at Me Like Emergency, was just images. And it felt like half of it was missing. It felt like the part of the story that the whole, the text needed to be in it to tell the full story. So the first book had some text, not loads in it. Um, however, as the years have gone on, it's now sort of equal parts, I think, text and image. And for me, the text sort of gets at the same central themes, the same subject matter about sort of living in the moment and, and being aware and, and feeling the world. Um, but it comes at it in a slightly different way. The text is more in many ways I've observed, more contemporary in some ways, making references to I don't know, Amazon Prime or FedEx or things I would never take a picture of, you know, but it feels so important that it, it, for me to have the text and the image that they sort of do quite different things um, in the hope to get to the more than the sum of their parts. But they, they are both coming from the same area, same place of what is it that stopped me in my tracks today? What is it that made me gasp? What do I, don't I understand? So taking these small moments and then somehow unpacking them further through writing about it. You talked earlier about your process in terms of creating images. What's your process when it comes to your writing? Um, quite similar and yet also different. As I think you, yes, as you mentioned, <clears throat> I don't write to an image or I've only done it once, I think. Write to an image and then, or vice versa, make photographs about a piece of text. I've only done that a couple of times. They normally happen quite independently. I typically love to write very early in the morning, like 4.35, I get up before the house is awake and I sit down almost while I'm asleep. Like I almost need to sort of get out the way of my busy mind and tap into. So then I'll, I'll hit, you know, look at my notebook, hit up my notebook and say, okay, well, yesterday I heard someone say this and it stayed with me. And so I'll then start writing about that. So it's this sort of, um, I might write for an hour at that point, and then I'll revisit it the next day, the next week, and it's a matter of rewriting it from there. So, 
you know, it all, same with the pictures. It sort of all comes from this unconscious place. But then I put conscious thought around it and I say, okay, well, let me think of some science, you know, let me look up. I'm, I'm sort of quite interested in that idea of science and art colliding. So with Blue Violet, for example, I mean, a lot of the text came from these personal moments, but then were sort of interlaced with ideas of, you know, the history of flowers or biology or how how flowers were used as botany, early medicine, you know. And so I would sort of weave in this, these historical, these scientific facts into these, these personal experiences. And that, to me, felt so exciting. If I wrote first thing in the morning, I would probably not be able to read what I wrote later, especially without a good <laughs> cup of coffee inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I've definitely got coffee. Don't, don't sorry, I oh. miss, you know, I misspoke. <laughs> the first thing I do is get a massive cup of coffee with cream. That was my own when I moved to Maine. I learned the joys of a you know half and half or full cream in your coffee. Delicious, just one really strong good cup. Oh yeah, sorry, nothing happens without a good <laughs> cup of coffee. I only have one a day, but it's a it's a really important one. And I might light a candle. I like you know I try and make it in a space where it feels sort of somehow beautiful and yeah. and magical as a place to sort of start you know so i, I you're writing longhand so you so there's a physical process yeah. when you're when you're putting pen or pencil to paper and also when you do you do book binding so you've designed your own books and you're working by hand tell me about the importance of that physicality of both of those processes especially when you're putting them together how important is that the physicality of it towards you finding the work again or rediscovering it in a different way? I don't know how to sort of put it, quantify it exactly, other than I know it's important. You know, other than it's, you know, I can, I could, I definitely use the computer without a doubt, um, you know, but the initial ideas uh, have to come through longhand for me. Um, I've had writing teachers who say that there's a, direct link from the, the heart and the brain through the hand. You know, I, I don't know if that's you know, actually true, but, you know, I'm sure that there are people who write, you know, straight to, onto a laptop or straight onto a computer and heart and head is still linked, you know. So I don't, I would, I would be hesitant to say it has to be longhand. Um, although for me, it has to be longhand initially. And then I can, when I'm starting to sort of pull in facts and historical references and um, art history references, I'll definitely be on the computer at that point to like pull it or weave it all together. But for me, somehow that real connection to uh, to the body and, and just the pen rather than a computer um, is, is really important. And maybe it's also because, you know, you're not, getting notifications about emails or, you know, you, you're not using the, the computer you use, you know, for so much of sort of the right hand side of our brains as well, things we have to do today and responding to emails. And so there's something that's really sort of really beautiful and elegant about a pencil and a blank page, you know, it's kind of weighty how empty it is, you know, uh, that I really respond to. Um, and then, you know, when I come to sequence the books, um, it's a real, creative process in itself. So I will have worked and done an initial sequence in bridge or something like that, but it really all gets thrown out because the moment I sort of go into the studio, print everything out eight by 10 plus the vignettes on a piece of paper, eight by 10. And then it's this puzzle and I'm rubbish at doing puzzles. I really, I'm useless at doing like thousand 
piece part of puzzles it's not my strength at all but I really think of you know putting together the books are like that too because it has to not only is there typically with my books a sort of narrative arc you know a start middle and end there's also you know obviously sequencing visually having you know the way sequencing through color sequencing through palette sequencing through you know where your eye goes to in the frame and all that joy I love sequencing and then but also you've got the text now like oh that can't go there that's too early for this and just it becomes this impossible or it feels like and you know, working with students, I've often experienced their sort of frustration, like, oh, it's impossible to do it, you know, and it's not, it's just, it takes time. And it's this slow moving tanker chip where each day, tiny things get moved around, and then you need a fresh pair of eyes to maybe come in and look at it. And so that in itself, for me, is a very physical process. It can't be done on a computer. It's just very different. But then I'm also someone who reads novels, you know, I like the physical book, so I could just be a little archaic with this. How about you? Do you read on a Kindle? Do both. I do both. There are certain books that I I just like the physical book, especially if I know it's a book that I'm going to reread. Yeah. Because um, there are certain books I just I just go and I go. I I know I'm going to pick this back up again, and so I'll just like sitting on the in the chair reading it. And there are other books, like a lot of nonfiction books that I know I'm probably not going to return to, so I just put those in my Kindle, and I'll read through yeah. those. But a lot of my fiction and literature, I usually like a, a hard copy because I had I get an emotional attachment to those books. And so if totally. I really- I write I, all I, over mine. Oh, do you? Well, that's how I got through college. All I, over it. Yeah. I discovered that I was, uh, that I have ADHD a couple of years ago. And I was as I was reading about it, I, I realized that because I had gone through most of my life being undiagnosed. And I realized that when it came to being able to read something, if someone immediately asked me a question about what I was reading, I would not be able to verbalize it, right? And one of the things I did was I would write notes in the margins. And when it came time to write a paper, it was the notes in the margins that allowed me to be able to digest what I'd written and to be able to translate it into the essays I was writing for my English classes. And so it was really kind of... A, a, exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think if someone asked me immediately, well, what about what you read? I just, I just, I just go blank. <laughs> and people think, oh, I just, I'm just having this book around as for decoration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do exactly the same thing. I mean, no one, like, I can't borrow books from a library, even though I love libraries. I take my daughter with the old time. I can't, I can't help it. I can't stop writing in margins or... You know, and that's exactly how any book that I'm reading, whether it's novel or nonfiction, typically I'm reading things that are somehow linked to my photo work, some or written work somehow. Um, and you know, and so I can't. Ha- I have to write, and that's and then I'll go back through, and I my a book when I'm finished looks like it's 120 years old. It's dog-eared. Like I have this whole like when something's really important, if it's not a thought I want to come back to, I'll turn it the page up from the bottom left triangle if it's just where i'm going to sleep it's top i have this like whole system of to make notes and um yeah no i you can't lend me a book because it will come back looking (laughs) (laughs) and then i really love that copy that that copy has to like it stays with me and it's marked up and um yeah i I mean it it can't be another copy of it you know has to be that one as you mentioned you're very prolific you're always creating work but when did when did you make the decision that 
okay, it's time to sit down and, and produce this latest book in terms of, you know, making the decision and beginning the process of looking back at what you've created and deciding, okay, which of all these images that I've created over whatever period of time it was uh, are meant to be together. You know, that's, that's really, it's a complicated response and and i sort of work with you know and i think you know many of us in who are making photographs and like when is this, when is the project over when is it starting is it, am i doing it now you know and when is it over and i think if you're paying attention to the work it tells you i mean in many ways you know you could put all four of my books together in one and it would just be one very big book you know so there there's a certain logistical part when it's about a life that's being lived in a sense, a simple, you know, non, non-extraordinary life being lived, um, then it all sort of leads into one. But I do feel that, you know, typically that you're concerned about, you know, within your central themes, there's sort of area you're concerned with, like, fully. And it, for me, and I, from the students that I've worked with, typically two, three years, and then you sort of move on to a different area. So it's being aware, typically there's normally a book in each of the book, a photograph in each of the books that I've done that should have belonged in the next book <laughs> or should have, you know, it's not quite actually in the right book, but no one would know other than me. Or maybe people think, well, that one doesn't really fit, but that's okay, you know. I mean, I, you know, I love books that are around one idea. It's the same with albums, music albums. Like I typically don't like greatest hits. You know, who does? You know, it's, you You know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, I think about the new Adele album, right? It's her breakup album yeah. or something, you know, I mean, there's something about that, you know, taking sort of, you know, in two years time, she'll have moved on. She'll still, I'm sure that will still hurt that time period, but it will still, it will be, you know, newer human experiences will have taken over, be more immediate perhaps. I, obviously, I'm not meaning to speak for her, but that same idea of, you know, I found that, for example, with me in the car accident, I made I made that book. It was really only a two-year body of work, which is quite, you know, not much for me. I would say typically most of my books are around four years of work, but two years because, and then it had sort of lessened, you know, the impact of it had lessened. Whereas that, was, that first year, there wasn't a single day. I didn't think about that accident probably 20 times a day. And it comes back down. To, it comes down to being human, right? And time, you know, we say, you know, when you're like devastated, you know that you just have to like pick yourself up, put your clothes on, go out and do that day. And in time, you will feel better, right? And and I think that, you know, that element of time, you want to make the work, your project in that time period, for me, where I'm feeling it the most. But that might not be for everyone. People might you know, again, it was, you know, when I started making emergency, I was looking back on the past and remembering how I felt then. I've sort of, I'm working in different ways now, but I do think that there's a time period where there's a natural time period to most things. Do you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I never know when anything started. I just started making the, the yeah. pictures. Yesterday, I started just taking, I had gathered a bunch of pictures that I've made over the last sort of 20 years and just put them all together. And I just started this process of just pairing. There was a photographer I listened to, I forget her name uh, recently. And she had just done this thing about pairing her pictures and that just sort of spurred me to do that. And I brought these two pictures together that I think there was a seven year 
or 10 year gap between the two of them. And they just sang mm-hmm. together. And one was a picture of a pair of tennis shoes that, that a guy was wearing and they kind of splayed out. And the other one was in a barber shop and the tissue was underneath the collar of the person and it was splayed out in very much the same way as the shoes. And I looked at that and I was just like, oh my God, I never would have thought of bringing those together. So over, you know, my, over the next month, I'm just going to grab pictures and just see how they play off of each other just as a way of sort of rediscovering, rediscovering them. And I think that that's, and whether that turns into anything, I don't know, but it was, it it was interesting way of sort of revisiting and how, I love that, how the, the difference in time is absolutely meaningless in terms of the relationship and the meaning derived from the images when they're brought together. I, I mean, I agree with that too. I mean, I definitely think, you know, in a way, so, you know, I just said, oh, this, I think that the time is really important, but then I'm also saying in another breath, is it though? I mean, couldn't this just be one big book? And I mean, what you described, you described like this, a formal concern, right? So the tennis shoes looked like the tissue. So there was this visual reference that was so beautiful together. And I would challenge you even further to say, well, is there some content, you know, the, so not just, um, you know, formal concerns of how things look, but is there also, are they content related? Because I do believe that each one of us that's a photographer really only has one or two central themes and we have to spend our entire lives trying not to repeat ourselves. So it could be that you are, I'd actually love to see the images of it. I mean, it's my most favorite thing to do is to look at people's images, put them together and start seeing, well, how is that portfolio or that picture of the tennis shoes actually connected content wise with that, tissue or the you know the different portfolios I there's always a connection but sometimes it feels like disparate like we don't spend enough time thinking about how our different portfolios are actually very much linked with the same ideas I mean what do you think of for your central god I have that is something I have been thinking a lot about and I'm not sure I've been doing a lot of writing I've been doing a lot of writing and yeah. for me, I know it is part of it is about memory, you know, trauma uh, plays a part in that. But one of the things that I, 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 I've always been aware of is that there are certain things that I am sensitive to that lead me to make a photograph. And though largely it may be sort of graphic in nature, at least that's the way it takes form in the, in the photograph. Whatever is sort of the impulse that yeah. drives me to make that discovery is innately something about me that is very different from anybody else. Because I could be among three other photographers and they're not going to react to this very same thing at all. And if they do, yeah. they're going to interpret it in a completely sort of different way. And sort of understanding what it is that I, that, that, that indescribable part of me is being led to. I've never been able to give voice and give it a hard definition, but I know what it feels like. When I have mm-hmm. that moment, it's and like it's I best. am, just as you you are 100% sure of your process, I am 100% confident of that moment because I have felt it so many times that I have my complete trust in it. And the challenge for me is, well, can yeah. I successfully interpret it into a photograph? Can I figure out enough of this scene or this moment that that's presenting itself and contextualize it within the frame. Why that is, why that initial spark 
happens at all, I don't know. But I know that it, I, I can trust it. You know, I've always said, yeah, I've always said that, that photography somehow, I don't know why, but it's somehow, it's, it's the truth say, it's the fortune, it's the, it's the uh, Ouija board. That it, oh, it, somehow, it's, I don't know why it works, but it does. I've, I trust it, you know, that it just, it, it's something that our conscious mind is um, just bumbling along behind us when the instinct comes, when that moment. Oh yeah. Cause I'll, I'll, I'll vocalize it. Oh, Oh, you know, yep. I am just on every <laughs> synapse in me is firing simultaneously in that moment. And, and I think for me, that's the most intoxicating, seductive thing about photography for me. It's not so much making the picture. It's making the discovery. That for me is the most seductive part of it because part of me feels like I found a secret treasure that no one else is aware of. Yeah, and that's why it never gets old. Well, you, you know, you can be in this a lifetime mm -hmm. and that feeling is still so magical and so precious and so elusive, but also so recognizable when it happens. And I just, I mean, I just, oh, I'm just so grateful that to pick a life in photography that, that we have this. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The Curious Society is about providing a solution for the changing economic world of photojournalism and documentary photography. They are a group of people that see the challenges faced by photographers and they're doing something about it by building community and supporting visual storytelling. That's what I love about the Curious Society, a member-supported nonprofit that has created an organization devoted to the work of today's best photojournalists and documentary photographers. If you have a passion for visual storytelling, you can start being a part of this community by becoming a member and joining in on their weekly hangouts on the Clubhouse app every Tuesday. Find out more by visiting their website at CuriousSociety.org. I'm sure you've had your moments where you've had your dry spells or, or, you, or you struggled as much as you have come to understand what your process is and what works for you, where, all, where it seems like everything is just screeched to a halt or, or it's just become insurmountable. So how do you move through those, those times? Well, the writing really helps. I mean, it really does. It's, it's a way to access because when you are like in the screeching halt, like the time, typically the answer is get out there and make pictures. You mm -hmm. just don't want to do it, right? So either writing kind of like, uh, it starts to like get something out of you and then, all right, maybe it's not so bad. And you like, you know, so for me, the writing definitely helps. Um, I have other tricks. Uh, you know, there's this great little book called Art and Fear. Oh, yeah, it? great book. I've reread it numerous times. Great book. Me too. So that's something, you know, because oftentimes the reason why we are not making our work is because we feel like we have nothing to say or we feel like, you know, we've said it before that it's no good or it's this, you know, self-doubt comes in. And so I think that book is a really wonderful reminder of we all feel like that and that's part and parcel of it. Um, you know, so I love, you know, I'll, I'll go and sit 
you know, and, and in the bath and read that, or I'll go in for a walk and listen and, uh, you know, something like that. So that's something I'll do. I'll also um, give myself a little, you know, I'll say, okay, you're allowed to go to Goodwill and you can buy one prop at Goodwill. Can't spend much money. You have to be willing to ruin it, you know, burn it, bury it, throw it. Um, and, and so that helps me access, you know, just get, having some fun again, you know, with it. Um, so I have different tricks that when I'm feeling like, oh, I've got nothing to say, um, different things I'll do to, to start feeling creative again. Um, but I do know that the answer is get out there and make, you know, get out there and make pictures. And so I, you know, it, it's then a matter of trying to like con myself or like trick myself to get out, get out there um, and, and actually follow through and do that. And then other times it's like you're just on fire and I can't sleep at night because I have to, I can't wait to make pictures and I'm feverish, you know, and it becomes, I'm in my project. I know exactly what I've got to do. And one thing I've learned is, you know, it's, it's, it's never like that. It's always feverish or like, oh, nothing to say, feverish, like love it. Oh, this sucks. You know, and it's like this, that is the journey of creativity. So the one good thing I know is that when you're feeling the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows, you're on the right path. You can't, art is not a straight flat road. You know, it is just not. So there's one thing I know that when I'm not feeling it, like, okay, this is also how I should be feeling some of the time. So what can I do to pick myself up? Who can I call? Who can like jolt me out of this? What can I read? What can I go and see? How can I trick myself, jolt myself to, to feel creative again? And, and just realizing that uh, not making the work is always going to be more painful in the long term than ever making it. You never regret going out with your camera, or at least I haven't. I've never gone, oh, shit, why did I get up this morning? That was a waste. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it always leads to something. Photography is nothing but good. I mean, it's just, it just brings so much more to your life, whether you get access to all these people that you had never met before because the camera gave you license or like opened the door for you to go in and meet someone, literally or figuratively. You know, it just is always a medium that, has, has, that opens and extends your life rather than making it smaller. I find that um, during those moments, I've had to also make it okay and not beat myself up for it and just say, okay, yeah. I'm, in this, I'm in this spot right now. It's fine. And even if I'm making photographs and I just feel like they're derivative of what I've already created, yeah. going, that's okay. I just need to keep making right. it. Because at some point, things will change. But, but just not getting yeah. bogged down in the struggle and wishing it Right. Wishing that there wasn't any struggle because there's a reason for it, but I may not be able to recognize exactly. it in the moment. And exactly. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think it helps to, you know, get off the computer, to make physical prints, to, you know, to start, to, you know, seeing the work itself grow and be alive and change. I think there's lots of little tricks that I do that, you know, definitely help jolt you out of it. I mean, a field cannot be flowering all year round. It can't be, you know, so, but is there something else you can do during that time period? Like if I'm feeling a little schlumpy, I tend to say, okay, well, you're going to do your taxes and your bookkeeping today. And then I'm like, oh, I don't do that either. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because all that business side of photography has to happen too. So if I'm feeling schlumpy, I'll be like, all right, I'm just going to do the stuff that is not most creative right now. And then that's done for when... I'm feeling feverish and can't sleep because I need to go and make something at 4 a.m., you know. Um, so it's, you know, again, it's like picking projects that 
that we don't have to go to, that we're just part of our lives. You know, like, let's not make it so hard or like impossible for ourselves to set ourselves up to fail again. You know, let's be kind to ourselves. I always say to, you know, my students, this idea of talk to yourself like you would your kid. You would never, the, the harsh talk that you oh, can yeah. interiorize, interiorize. You would never do that to your kid. At least I would hope you would never do that. So, you know, the artist within you is this sort of joyful, creative being. Like it doesn't need the chastising by the other side of you. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't, that, that muscle does not need to be exercised any more than it's already doing, you know. Very true. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um, okay. So can I have two or just one? Go ahead. <laughs> two is okay. Okay. Uh, Debbie Fleming Caffrey. Do you know Debbie Fleming Caffrey's no. work? Mm-hmm. Ah, she's great. She's a Southern photographer. She is, um, she's extraordinary, uh, you know, prolific has, you know, made this extraordinary life of making pictures. Her work is I mean, it is all the feelings. She's a sort of documentary, uh, street uh, documentary photographer. Um, And just, I mean, just packed full of of emotion and energy and, uh, you know, has worked all her life. I mean, just extraordinary work, Um, black and white uh, work. I just absolutely love her work. Um, She is, and also her, she's an amazing person. And then... um, uh, a younger friend of mine, Madeline Morlay, she has an extraordinary body of work that she's that she's building. Um, just again, just really uh, energetic, alive work, um, and someone who sort of walks the walk and and is going through all the the um, the, the inquiry and what to what it is to sort of make this big body of work. So those are my two two suggestions for people to check out. All right. Well, thank Sig. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. I'm so glad to have finally uh, connected with you. And I just am deeply honored to be on the show. So I I thank you. And I'm sorry, the email notification was binging. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I didn't hear it. Thanks to Sig for joining us. Explore her work by visiting SigHarvey.com. And if you purchase her book, Blue Violet, use our affiliate link which you'll find in the show notes or our website. And remember to check out the Curious Society at CuriousSociety.org. They're building a wonderful community, promoting and supporting exceptional photojournalism and documentary photography. Buy the first issue of the magazine or become a member. And remember, check out their weekly discussion on Tuesday afternoons on the Clubhouse app. If you're a fan of the work that we do, there are different ways for you to support us. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Remo Fioroni, Charles Origer, and Daniel Chalmers for their recent contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. 
the show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candor Frame.